Chapter Five, Part Three of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Five: Applied Idealism, Part Three. My experience with Senator Quay was similar. I had no personal relations with him before I was president, and knew nothing of him save by hearsay. Soon after I became president, Senator Quay called upon me, told me he had known me very slightly, that he thought most men who claimed to be reformers were hypocrites, but that he deemed me sincere, that he thought conditions had become such that aggressive courage and honesty were necessary in order to remedy them, that he believed I intended to be a good and efficient president, and that to the best of his ability he would support me in making my administration a success. He kept his word with absolute good faith. He had been in the Civil War, and was a Medal of Honor man, and I think my having been in the Spanish War gave him at the outset a kindly feeling toward me. He was also a very well-read man. I owe to him, for instance, my acquaintance with the writings of the Finnish novelist Topolius. Not only did he support me on almost every public question in which I was most interested, including, I am convinced, every one on which he felt he could conscientiously do so, but he also, at the time of his death, gave a striking proof of his disinterested desire to render a service to certain poor people, and this under conditions in which not only would he never know if the service were rendered, but in which he had no reason to expect that his part in it would ever be made known to any other man. Quay was descended from a French voyageur who had some Indian blood in him. He was proud of this Indian blood, took an especial interest in Indians, and whenever Indians came to Washington they always called on him. Once, during my administration, a delegation of Iroquois came over from Canada to call on me at the White House. Their visit had in it something that was pathetic as well as amusing. They represented the descendants of the six nations, who fled to Canada after Sullivan harried their towns in the Revolutionary War. Now, a century and a quarter later, their people thought that they would like to come back into the United States, and these representatives had called upon me with the dim hope that perhaps I could give their tribes land on which they could settle. As soon as they reached Washington, they asked Quay to bring them to call on me, which he did, telling me that of course their errand was hopeless, and that he had explained as much to them, but that they would like me to extend the courtesy of an interview. At the close of the interview, which had been conducted with all the solemnities of Calumet and Wampum, the Indians filed out. Quay, before following them, turned to me with his usual emotionless face, and said, "'Good-bye, Mr. President. This reminds one of the flight of a Tartar tribe, doesn't it?' I answered, "'So you're fond of De Quincey, Senator?' To which Quay responded, "'Yes, always like De Quincey. Good-bye.' And away he went with the tribesmen, who seemed to have walked out of a remote past. Quay had become particularly concerned about the Delawares and the Indian Territory. He felt that the Interior Department did not do them justice. He also felt that his colleagues of the Senate took no interest in them. When, in the spring of 1904, he lay in his house mortally sick, he sent me word that he had something important to say to me, and would have himself carried round to see me. I sent back word not to think of doing so, and that on my way back from church next Sunday I would stop in and call on him. This I accordingly did. He was lying in his bed, death written on his face. He thanked me for coming, and then explained that, as he was on the point of death, and knew he would never return to Washington, it was late spring and he was about to leave, he wished to see me to get my personal promise that, after he died, I would myself look after the interests of the Delaware Indians. 
He added that he did not trust the Interior Department, although he knew that I did not share his views on this point, and that still less did he believe that any of his colleagues in the Senate would exert themselves in the interests of the Delawares, and that therefore he wished my personal assurance that I would personally see that no injustice was done them. I told him I would do so, and then added, in rather perfunctory fashion, that he must not take such a gloomy view of himself, that when he got away for the summer I hoped he would recover and be back all right when Congress opened. A gleam came into the old fighter's eyes, and he answered, No, I am dying, and you know it. I don't mind dying, but I do wish it were possible for me to get off into the great north woods, and crawl out on a rock in the sun, and die like a wolf. I never saw him again. When he died I sent a telegram of sympathy to his wife. A paper, which constantly preached reform, and which kept up its circulation by the no less constant practice of slander, a paper which, in theory, condemned all public men who violated the Eighth Commandment, and in practice subsisted by incessant violation of the Ninth, assailed me for sending my message to the dead man's wife. I knew the editors of this paper, and the editor who was their predecessor. They had led lives of bodily ease and the avoidance of bodily risk. They earned their livelihood by the practice of mendacity for profit, and they derived malignant judgment on a dead man who, whatever his faults, had in his youth freely risked his life for a great ideal, and who, when death was already clutching his breast, had spent almost his last breath on behalf of a humble and friendless people whom he had served with disinterested loyalty. There is no greater duty than to war on the corrupt and unprincipled boss, and on the corrupt and unprincipled business man and for the matter of that, on the corrupt and unprincipled labor-leader also, and on the corrupt and unprincipled editor, and on any one else who is corrupt and unprincipled. But where the conditions are such, whether in politics or in business, that the great majority of men have behaved in a way which is gradually seen to be improper, but which at one time did not conflict with the generally accepted morality, then the warfare on the system should not include warfare on the men themselves, unless they decline to amend their ways and to disassociate themselves from the system. There are many good, unimaginative citizens who in politics or in business act in accordance with accepted standards, in a matter-of-course way, without questioning these standards, until something happens which sharply arouses them to the situation, whereupon they try to work for better things. The proper course in such event is to let bygones be bygones, and if the men prove by their actions the sincerity of their conversion, heartily to work with them for the betterment of business and political conditions. By the time that I was ending my career as civil service commissioner, I was already growing to understand that mere improvement in political conditions by itself was not enough. I dimly realized that an even greater fight must be waged to improve economic conditions, and to secure social and industrial justice, justice between individuals and justice as between classes. I began to see that political effort was largely valuable, as it found expression and resulted in such social and industrial betterment. I was gradually puzzling out, or trying to puzzle out, the answers to the various questions, some as yet unsolvable to any of us, but for the solution of which it is the bounden duty of us all to work. I had grown to realize very keenly that the duty of the government to protect women and children must be extended to include the protection of all the crushable elements of labor. I saw that it was the affair of all our people to see that justice obtained between the big corporation and its employees, and between the big corporation and its smaller rivals, as well as customers and the general public. I saw that it was the affair of all of us, and not only of the employer, 
if dividends went up and wages went down, that it was to the interest of us all that a full share of the benefit of improved machinery should go to the workmen who used the machinery, and also that it was to the interest of all of us that each man, whether brain-worker or hand-worker, should do the best work of which he was capable, and that there should be some correspondence between the value of the work and the value of the reward. It is these and many similar questions which, in their sum, make up the great social and industrial problems of to-day, the most interesting and important of the problems with which our public life must deal. In handling these problems I believe that much can be done by the government. Furthermore, I believe that, after all that the government can do has been done, there will remain, as the most vital of all factors, the individual character of the average man and the average woman. No governmental action can do more than supplement individual action. Moreover, there must be collective action of kinds distinct from governmental action. A body of public opinion must be formed, must make itself felt, and in the end transform, and be transformed by, the gradual raising of individual standards of conduct. It is curious to see how difficult it is to make some men understand that insistence upon one factor does not and must not mean failure to fully recognize other factors. The selfish individual needs to be taught that we must now shackle cunning by law, exactly as a few centuries back we shackled force by law. Unrestricted individualism spells ruin to the individual himself. But so does the elimination of individualism, whether by law or custom. It is a capital error to fail to recognize the vital need of good laws. It is also a capital error to believe that good laws will accomplish anything unless the average man has the right stuff in him. The toiler, the manual laborer, has received less than justice, and he must be protected, both by law, by custom, and by the exercise of his right to increase his wage, and yet to decrease the quantity and quality of his work will work only evil. There must be a far greater need of respect and reward for the hand-worker than we now give him, if our society is to be put on a sound basis, and this respect and reward cannot be given him unless he is as ambitious to do the best possible work as is the highest type of brain-worker, whether doctor or writer or artist. There must be a raising of standards, and not a leveling down to the standard of the poorest and most inefficient. There is urgent need of intelligent governmental action to assist in making the life of the man who tills the soil all that it should be, and to see that the manual worker gets his full share of the reward for what he helps produce. But if either farmer, mechanic, or day-laborer is shiftless or lazy, if he shirks downright hard work, if he is stupid or self-indulgent, then no law can save him, and he must give way to a better type. I suppose that some good people will misunderstand what I say, and will insist on taking only half of it as representing the whole. Let me repeat. When I say that even after we have all the good laws necessary, the chief factor in any given man's success or failure must be that man's own character, it must not be inferred that I am in the least minimizing the importance of these laws, the real and vital need for them. The struggle for individual advancement and development can be brought to naught, or indefinitely retarded, by the absence of law or by bad law. It can be immeasurably aided by organized effort on the part of the State. Collective action and individual action, public law and private character, are both necessary. It is only by a slow and patient inward transformation, such as these laws aid in bringing about, that men are really helped upward in their struggle for a higher and a fuller life. 
Recognition of individual character as the most important of all factors does not mean failure fully to recognize that we must have good laws, and that we must have our best men in office to enforce these laws. The nation collectively will in this way be able to be of real and genuine service to each of us individually, and on the other hand, the wisdom of the collective action will mainly depend on the high individual average of citizenship. The relationship of man and woman is the fundamental relationship that stands at the base of the whole social structure. Much can be done by law towards putting women on a footing of complete and entire equal rights with man, including the right to vote, the right to hold and use property, and the right to enter any profession she desires on the same terms as a man. Yet when this has been done it will amount to little unless on the one hand the man himself realizes his duty to the woman, and unless on the other hand the woman realizes that she has no claim to rights unless she performs the duties that go with those rights, and that alone justify her in appealing to them. A cruel, selfish, or licentious man is an abhorrent member of the community. But, after all, his actions are no worse in the long run than those of the woman who is content to be a parasite on others, who is cold, selfish, caring for nothing but frivolous pleasure and ignoble ease. The law of worthy effort, the law of service for a worthy end, without regard to whether it brings pleasure or pain, is the only right law of life, whether for man or for woman. The man must not be selfish, nor, if the woman is wise, will she let the man grow selfish, and this not only for her own sake but for his. One of the prime needs is to remember that almost every duty is composed of two seemingly conflicting elements and that over-insistence on one, to the exclusion of the other, may defeat its own end. Any man who studies the statistics of the birth-rate among the native Americans of New England, or among the native French of France, needs not to be told that when prudence and forethought are carried to the point of cold selfishness and self-indulgence, the race is bound to disappear. Taking into account the women who for good reasons do not marry, taking into account the women who for good reasons do not marry, or who when married are childless or able to have but one or two children, it is evident that the married woman able to have children must, on an average, have four, or the race will not perpetuate itself. This is the mere statement of a self-evident truth. Yet foolish and self-indulgent people often resent this statement as if it were in some way possible by denunciation to reverse the facts of nature, and on the other hand, improvident and shiftless people, inconsiderate and brutal people, treat the statement as if it justified heads of families in having enormous numbers of badly nourished, badly brought up, and badly cared for children, for whom they make no effort to provide. A man must think well before he marries. He must be a tender and considerate husband, and realize that there is no other human being to whom he owes so much of love and regard and consideration as he does to the woman who, with pain, bears and with labor rears the children that are his. No words can paint the scorn and contempt which must be felt by all right-thinking men, not only for the brutal husband, but for the husband who fails to show full loyalty and consideration to his wife. Moreover, he must work, he must do his part in the world. On the other hand, the woman must realize that she has no more right to shirk the business of wifehood and motherhood than the man has to shirk his business as breadwinner for the household. Women should have free access to every field of labor which they care to enter, and when their work is as valuable as that of a man it should be paid as highly. Yet normally for the man and the woman whose welfare is more important than the welfare of any other human beings, the woman must remain the housemother, the homekeeper, and the man must remain the breadwinner, 
the provider for the wife who bears his children and for the children she brings into the world. No other work is as valuable or exacting for either man or woman. It must always, in every healthy society, be for both man and woman the prime work, the most important work. Normally all other work is of secondary importance, and must come as an addition to, not a substitute for, this primary work. The partnership should be one of equal rights, one of love, of self-respect, and unselfishness, above all a partnership for the performance of the most vitally important of all duties. The performance of duty, and not an indulgence in vapid ease and vapid pleasure, is all that makes life worth while. Suffrage for women should be looked on from this standpoint. Personally I feel that it is exactly as much a right of women as of men to vote but the important point with both men and women is to treat the exercise of the suffrage as a duty, which in the long run must be well performed to be of the slightest value. I always favoured women's suffrage, but only tepidly, until my association with women like Jane Addams and Frances Keller, who desired it as one means of enabling them to render better and more efficient service, changed me into a zealous instead of a lukewarm adherent of the cause, in spite of the fact that a few of the best women of the same type, women like Mary Anton, did not favour the movement. A vote is like a rifle. Its usefulness depends upon the character of the user. The mere possession of the vote will no more benefit men and women not sufficiently developed to use it than the possession of rifles will turn untrained Egyptian fellaheen into soldiers. This is as true of women as of men, and no more true. Universal suffrage in Haiti has not made the Haitians able to govern themselves in any true sense, and woman's suffrage in Utah in no shape or way affected the problem of polygamy. I believe in suffrage for women in America, because I think they are fit for it. I believe for women, as for men, more in the duty of fitting oneself to do well and wisely with the ballot than in the naked right to cast the ballot. I wish that people would read more books, like the novels and stories, at once strong and charming, of Henry Bordeaux, books like Kathleen Norris's Mother and Cornelia Cummer's Preliminaries, and would use these and other such books as tracts now and then. Perhaps the following correspondence will give a better idea than I can otherwise give of the problems that in everyday life come before men and women, and of the need that the man shall show himself unselfish and considerate, and do his full share of the joint duty. January 3rd, 1913. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt. Dear Sir, I suppose you are willing to stand sponsor for the assertion that the women of the country are not doing their duty unless they have large families. I wonder if you know the real reason after all. Society and clubs are largely held to blame, but society really takes in so few people after all. I thought when I got married at twenty that it was the proper thing to have a family, and as we had very little of this world's goods, also thought it the thing to do all the necessary work for them. I have had nine children, did all my own work, including washing, ironing, house-cleaning, and the care of the little ones as they came along, which was about every two years. Also sewed everything they wore, including trousers for the boys and caps and jackets for the girls while little. I also helped them in all their school work, and started them in music, etc. But as they grew older I got behind the times. I never belonged to a club or a society or lodge, nor went to any one's house scarcely. There wasn't time. In consequence I knew nothing that was going on in the town, much less the events of the country, and at the same time my husband kept growing in wisdom and knowledge, from mixing with men and hearing topics of the times discussed. 
At the beginning of our married life I had just as quick a mind to grasp things as he did, and had more school education, having graduated from a three years' high school. My husband more and more declined to discuss things with me, as he said, I didn't know anything about it. When I'd ask, he'd say, Oh, you wouldn't understand if I'd tell you. So here I am, at forty-five years, hopelessly dull and uninteresting, while he can mix with the brightest minds in the country as an equal. He's a strong, progressive man, took very active part in the late campaign, etc. I am also progressive, and tried my best, after so many years of shut-in life, to grasp the ideas you stood for, and read everything I could find during the summer and fall. But I've been out of touch with people too long now, and my husband would much rather go and talk to some woman who hasn't had any children, because she knows things. I am not specifying any particular woman. I simply bore him to death because I'm not interesting. Now, tell me, how is it my fault? I was only doing what I thought was my duty. No woman can keep up with things who never talks with anyone but young children. As soon as my children grew up, they took the same attitude as their father, and frequently say, Oh, mother doesn't know. They look up to and admire their father, because he's a man of the world, and knows how to act when he goes out. How can I urge my daughters now to go and raise large families? It means, by the time you have lost your figure and charm for them, they are all ashamed of you. Now, as a believer in woman's rights, do a little talking to the men as to their duties to their wives, or else refrain from urging us women to have children. I am only one of thousands of middle-class, respectable women who give their lives to raise a nice family, and then who become bitter from the injustice done us. Don't let this go into the waste-basket, but think it over. Yours respectfully, blank. New York, January eleventh, 1913 My dear Mrs. Blank, most certainly your letter will not go into the waste-paper basket. I shall think it over and show it to Mrs. Roosevelt. Will you let me say, in the first place, that a woman who can write such a letter is certainly not hopelessly dull and uninteresting? If the facts are as you state, then I do not wonder that you feel bitterly, and that you feel that the gravest kind of injustice has been done to you. I have always tried to insist to men that they should do their duty to the women even more than the women to them. Now, I hardly like to write specifically about your husband, because you might not like it yourself. It seems to me almost incredible that any man who is the husband of a woman who has borne him nine children should not feel that they and he are lasting her debtors. You say that you have had nine children, that you did all your own work, including washing, ironing, house-cleaning, and the care of the little ones as they came along, that you sewed everything they wore, including trousers for the boys and caps and jackets for the girls while little, that you helped them in all their school-work and started them in music, but that as they grew older you got behind the times, that you never belonged to a club or society or lodge, nor went to any one's house, as you hardly had time to do so, and that in consequence your husband outgrew you, and that your children look up to him and not to you, and feel that they have outgrown you. If these facts are so, you have done a great and wonderful work, and the only explanation I can possibly give of the attitude you describe on the part of your husband and children is that they do not understand what it is that you have done. I emphatically believe in unselfishness, but I also believe that it is a mistake to let other people grow selfish, even when the other people are husband and children. Now, I suggest that you take your letter to me, of which I send you back a copy, and this letter, and then select out of your family the one with whom you feel most sympathy, whether it is your husband or one of your children. Show the two letters to him or her, and then have a frank talk about the matter. If any man, as you say, becomes ashamed of his wife because she has lost her figure in bearing his children, then that man is a hound, 
and has every cause to be ashamed of him. I am sending you a little book called Mother, by Kathleen Norris, which will give you my views on the matter. Of course there are base and selfish men, just as there are, although I believe in smaller numbers, base and selfish women. Man and woman alike should profit by the teachings in such a story as this of Mother. Sincerely yours, Theodore Roosevelt. January 21, 1913. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt. My dear sir, your letter came as a surprise, for I wasn't expecting an answer. The next day the book came, and I thank you for your ready sympathy and understanding. I feel as though you and Mrs. Roosevelt would think I was hardly loyal to my husband and children, but knowing of no other way to bring the idea which was so strong in my mind to your notice, I told my personal story. If it will in a small measure be the means of helping someone else by moulding public opinion through you, I shall be content. You have helped me more than you know. Just having you interested is as good as a tonic, and braces me up till I feel as though I shall refuse to be laid on the shelf. To think that you'd bother to send me a book! I shall always treasure it both for the text of the book and the sender. I read it with absorbing interest. The mother was so splendid, she was ideal. The situations are so startlingly real, just like what happens here every day with variations. Blank. A narrative of facts is often more convincing than a homily, and these two letters of my correspondent carry their own lesson. Parenthetically, let me remark that whenever a man thinks that he has outgrown the woman who is his mate, he will do well to consider whether his growth has not been downward instead of upward, whether the facts are not merely that he has fallen away from his wife's standard of refinement and of duty. End of chapter 5, part 3